So we're on Luke 15, as I mentioned, and I managed to get my Bible up, <laughs> which has been a real interesting challenge. And I think, I think let's read the whole chapter, shall we? And uh, Christian, why don't you read verses 1 to 7? Okay. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the, and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Uh, read the next story. Just 8 to 10? Why don't you read 8 uh, to 13? Okay. Or what woman... If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which, was, which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided the wealth between them. And not many days later, the young son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Okay, Kim. Mm -hmm. One to read uh, to verse 24. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his, his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. When he came to himself, he said, How many have hired servants of my father have bread enough to share and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best, uh, the best robe, and put it on him, and put the ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this is my son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. 
Now his older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of his servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, Your brother has arrived, and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in, but his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, Look, I have served you all these years, and I never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you have never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returned after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he was found. So what is what do these three stories tell us about salvation and atonement? I think one of the themes, one of the themes of these stories is that no matter how lost um, people are, when they um, depending on the perspective, when they come back to Jesus as in the prodigal son, or when Jesus finds them. Um, he's ecstatic Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. and it's just so happy that they're um, part of the family again. One of the most prevailing views of the atonement and salvation is a legal construct which starts with the perception that our condition is that we are depraved. We have a depraved nature. And that we are deserving of punishment, uh, which is eternal death, or in, in the origins of this view, e- eternally burning hell. Uh, this view actually goes back to Anselm of Canterbury, Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, who wrote a piece called Cur Deo Homos, Homo, uh, in which he talks about the atonement as repairing uh, or as satisfying God's honor, that his honor has been uh, brought down and he has to be, it has to be satisfied. And that, uh, in turn, was followed on by the Reformers, who believe more of a satisfaction to justice kind of, of model. Um, what is the condition here in this, these parables of sinners? Are they in a judicial, is Jesus portraying them as, a, as judicially needing or deserving a punishment? And then does he portray himself as, as coming to take the place of these people and suffer their punishment? Well, I know that um, the Father depraves himself to an extent. Just he humbles him, certainly humbles himself, doesn't he? He, um, he? he lifts up his garments, which is something that only servants do, mm-hmm. and runs, something mm-hmm. only servants mm-hmm. do, and essentially is taking the humili- um, the shame mm-hmm. upon himself by going to um, the son, almost essentially, essentially saying that he doesn't really have... Um, or people thinking he doesn't have the power you say he does, because... 
normally isn't that a demonstration of power of the person staying put and the other person running towards them. Mm-hmm. Uh, which it would suggest that Jesus is turning a few historic constructs. I mean, the, you can find the uh, probably the origin if you were to trace it back historically, the origin of this legal construct in Mesopotamia. Uh, and, and some of the myths that portray the gods giving life to human beings after the slaying a god and, and using the blood of that god uh, to create life. What is the condition of, of the people who are saved in this chapter, or of the things that are saved? say, because some of them aren't people. What, what's their state? Lost. They're lost. He doesn't call them depraved. He doesn't denounce them, condemn them. He, they're lost. They need to be found. And, and in every one of these, uh, the person finding them Represents who? Jesus. Uh-huh. Jesus or God? Mm-hmm. Jesus is God, of course, mm-hmm. but I think I think honestly they they represent the Father, don't they? I mean, the, the Father yeah. in the parable, the prodigal son, most logically represents the Father. But what about this woman? And we come to her, we say that's the church. Some people say it's the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a that's a a little, perhaps a little more true to the the storyline yeah. in the in the chapter. But uh, God is portrayed in the Bible quite often as a woman, as like a woman. So, so just a, re- a reminder of that. But these are lost people. And how eager God is to find us. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and we need to, before we get any further, we need to look at the context of this. What is the context of these stories? The tax collectors and the sinners were coming to him to listen to him. Yeah. And the scribes and, the scribes and Pharisees didn't like that. They grumble, saying this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, they're in the judicial model where you condemn and you only, only accept sinners if the price has been paid, right? Okay, so, so I, I, this is the background against which this, um, these stories are uh, given. Let's work on the first one and, and see what we can get out of it. We have this a hundred sheep and lost one of them. Why does Jesus not say, oh, a bunch of them left? And of course, it's important to keep your sheep, right? But he loses one. I think he's also demonstrating how precious a commodity it is to, um, to have a sheep. And, like, and this directly portrays to, I mean, this relates to I would think a great amount of the people there. How valuable is a single soul, right? A sinner. Yeah. How valuable is a single sinner? 
I can't help when I when I read this thinking of our Adventist mania for evangelism and wanting crowds and how we love to tally how many people are in the church, how many baptisms we have. And uh, we've often referred to it as the numbers game uh, in the church. Um, Jesus says, look, I don't care how many people you have in the fold. If there is one out there that's lost, you go find it. It's valuable to me. And I think, I honestly think that the Adventist church is, is dying for two things. For two reasons. Number one, we don't have any we don't haven't found any good news to share. We have we are in a sense playing church, but we don't have the real gospel. We don't have a real understanding of God that would would inspire us to go out and share it. That's, that's number one. And number two, we don't value people. We just, we have a real done problem. I know they like to take the numbers of the ones that come in. Do they take numbers of the ones that go? Uh, we're supposed to, theoretically. I think I think there's there's those numbers somewhere. And, and we, lately there has been a little more honest reporting. And, and there's now an attempt to being made to really clean up our books and really make sure that the people that we say we have, we really have. But it's a very difficult thing to get some divisions to cooperate. Mm-hmm. I just wondering if there were double counts. Well, I, I, I prayed in the past that has been true, and and some estimates, you know, we claim to be 18 million strong, but some estimates are considerably below that. Um, but I, you know, forget the numbers. Yeah. Numbers are numbers. What about people? So, though you have a hundred sheep and you lose one of them, the sh- a good shepherd goes out and he finds it. And then comes the rejoicing, which underscores again the value of this one sheep. And um, I've sometimes. Um, sometimes thought that, you know, God went after a one lost world out of a universe of worlds that are perfect. Would he, why would he miss that one one world? That's because he loves that And I really think it's only as we find his love and, and really drink it in our lives that, that we can come to have that compassion for us. Hmm. And that he would have emptied all of heaven for one. Yeah. And for one of us yeah. on this one last planet. <laughs> right. That, that again boggles our mind because our society really, not everybody in our society, there's a lot of good things going on, but uh, our society as a whole tends, if you, if you look at them, just look at the media and how people are portrayed in, in movies, in uh, um, I'm not going to name specific programs. Uh, but there are programs where, and even in the news, where you start, we start objectifying people. We turn them into objects. 
uh, and objects of scorn, objects of derision, objects of shame, objects of uh, just to walk, to use them. Uh, and and our, and our world is getting so difficult. Um, I'm I'm coming face to face with this more and more often as I try to help my parents who are elderly. The the racketeering that goes on out there. They don't get the same price when they make a phone call asking for a commodity. People take advantage, try to take advantage of them because they're elderly. They try to they they manipulate them to get them to tell their age so that they can take advantage. It's just uh, there's nobody you can trust out there that, unless you know their face and, and know who they are and you've had enough contact with them to be able to trust them. Um, there's times when, because people, you know, people will turn on you. So, um, the value of, of personhood, the value of a person, is just inestimable. And if we valued other people, um, I just had a heartbreaking story from one of my students about a person speaking of someone turning on someone. Uh, someone who was a denominational employee got turned on by someone who was angry over that person holding to the line on something and told a story that wasn't true and completely ruined their reputation. Um, it's if we to valued people, and to me, people who do that kind of thing, if we do that kind of thing, we don't value ourselves. We're trash. When, when you point the finger at someone else, you have three pointing back at yourself. And the same thing is true in principle of how we treat other people. The way we treat other people is how we actually are treating ourselves, or even worse. So, uh, when he find, arrives home, so he's thrilled, he places it on his shoulders, doesn't make it walk home. <laughs> right? If it has a broken leg, he's going to fix it. If, if it's wounded, he's going to bind up its wounds. Uh, so he puts it on his shoulders. And that sheep that wandered off, shame on him. There's no shame on him yeah. in the story. Uh, that sheep gets put on his shoulders and gets a free ride home. And then he calls together his friends and neighbors after, presumably after he's bound up the sheep and made sure it's okay. Uh, celebrate with me, he says, because I found my lost sheep. And the same way I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, did this sheep repent? <laughs> what did it do to repent? It didn't do anything. It just let the shepherd find it. It didn't resist the shepherd. It didn't keep wandering off over the edge of the cliff or wherever. So how easy is it to repent? Very you know, we we try. We seem to like to create hoops for people to go over. We we call that bureaucracy. <laughs> red tape, red tape. 
And we seem to think God has just loads of red tape for us to jump over before we come back. But this story, to me, says there's no red tape. Just find it. Let, let him find you. Anything else in that story before we move on? Okay. What about this woman who owns ten silver coins and loses one of them? Let me just give you a little insight. The sense that some have, I think, from this story is that these are her dowry. It's very unlikely that a peasant woman is going to have ten coins for just any reason, unless it's her dowry. And that dowry is precious, that is her inheritance. Whereas her brothers got land, or part of the estate, or whatever, uh, she got these ten silver coins. And she's supposed to keep them, only for in the case of her husband dying, or her husband uh, divorcing her. Those are the two instances uh, in which she is to use her dowry. I suppose she is allowed to use it in the case of her husband. We're in Luke 15. In the case of her, of her husband becoming terribly ill, and she needs to spend money on him to bring him back to health. And, and then there's always the risk that her husband might take possession of that dowry and use it up, which happened. Was it a lot of money? It's not clear to me what coins these are, but silver coins, it was probably a lot of money. Okay. So she loses just one of, one of those ten silver coins, and she goes and searches the house up and turns it upside down to find it. And again... So, so why does Jesus read? He basically is retelling the first story, isn't he? Changing a little bit of the items. How valuable is a lifeless coin? Now, at least the sheep was alive; yeah. it could bleat, but a coin can do nothing. But it represented life. It wasn't uh, representing the marriage covenant between her and her husband. Well, I just got through saying that it's a, her dowry. Oh, okay. Oh. Probably. Just like money today represents us being able to live. It gives us, you know, food and place to live. And True. True. But isn't, isn't this coin... You think of the condition of this coin. Can the coin bleat for help? Can the coin help her find it? This reminds me of like those stories where missionaries can't go and then God finds them. Mm -hmm. yeah. The coin can't call for help. Mm -hmm. See, I think this is depicting people who are in a situation where they can't, they're bound and they can't call for help. They can't do anything to help themselves. And we're still to go find them. And God still finds them. And he still rejoices over them. Okay. Anything more on that story? You're talking about, like, I mean, in extreme cases, even people found in slavery, uh, trafficking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
There's a book you might want to get a hold of that you can buy it on Kindle. It's called The Prodigal Daughter. And it is, it almost reads like fiction, except there's an epilogue that makes it seem a true story. But it, it follows the parable of the prodigal son, almost to a T. Um, but this woman decided to have a fling in, uh, in, the, in the Hollywood, in uh, becoming a movie star. She wanted to become a movie star. She was, she was good at acting. And so she simply, she persuaded her boyfriend to take her down there. And she ended up partying and she ended up getting uh, drugged. And she ended up getting all her money milk that her father had given her. Uh, and uh, she ended up in jail because she hadn't, she'd lost her ID, I believe. And she ran a, a stop sign, and I think it it wasn't her car she ended up in or something. Anyway, she ended up in jail uh, with some other women who were in the nightlife, and they told her, if you were desperate, if you're desperate when you get out, uh, look me up. And she did, and got in sex traffic. And... Uh, almost an impossible situation that she was in. And she ended up, this is a really wild story, she ended up stealing her manager's car. She knew where he kept the key. And she ended up stealing that car. And she got, she lived in the Central Valley, California. So she, had, she starts heading for home. And she gets... I can't remember at what place, near Manteca, it seems to me. And she heard gas gauges on empty. And she tries to pull over to a service station, and there's an officer's car. And she's terrified because her car is stolen. And she still has no ID, I believe. So she prayerfully exits back onto the freeway and prays that God will keep that car going. And he does, all the way home, on empty. And uh, the the ex-boyfriend now, he had another girlfriend. Uh, Of course. uh, The ex-boyfriend decided with another bunch of men to go and return the car. So they risked their lives they got caught by FBI agents trying to bust the, or, the, the undercover. And because their story was so believable, they let them go. They, they were able to kind of prove their story. They let them go, and uh, it all turned out. But it's, it's an amazing uh, story. So you might want to look that up. But uh, it's... I can't remember the author's name. It's a prominent Adventist author of stories. So we come now to the next one, the prodigal son. Why do we call the son the prodigal? The story doesn't use the term prodigal, does it? 
What does prodigal mean? Nobody knows. I don't know. I Is it another heard. word for lost? Or? No. It's not a word for lost. I haven't ever thought to look it up. You just... Well, let's look it up. I mean, I could tell you, but let's look it up. And just type in prodigal. Definition. Spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Having or giving something on a lavish scale. Now tell me, is the son prodigal? Okay. Is anybody else in the story prodigal on that definition? The father. The father. Yeah. I mean, doesn't he give something on a lavish scale yeah. here? Different intents, though. Oh, yes. But, there, but still, anybody looking on would say, he's a nut. Why, was he, why would he give all that? I mean... Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you haven't seen the story through the eyes that I see it. Let's move through it. So, I want you to notice verse twelve. The younger son said to his father, "Father, give me the share of my inheritance." Do you know what that's that's saying? You're dead to me. You're dead to me. That's the worst thing a son can say to a father. In ancient Judaism. So the father does what? He gives a ton. Uh, is that what it says? He divided his. He divided wow. his estate between them both. Who? That's a detail we always miss. And it's a very important detail. He gives up his entire estate. That's what he means. He sells out. Only he doesn't sell out. He gives it all away to his sons while he's still alive. So soon after that, the younger son gathers everything he has and takes a trip to a land far away. That probably meant he had to sell some land that would never be his again. Now maybe he sold it to his older brother. But this is something you didn't do was sell your inheritance in Jewish culture. Oh. <laughs> and there he becomes prodigal. He wasted his wealth through extravagant living. Couldn't be a better definition of pro uh, prodigal, could it? And then he used up his resources. And then there was a severe food shortage known as a famine. So he hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. What kind of degradation is that? For a Jewish boy to end up in a pigsty it's like the height of or the depth of degradation. And he longed to eat what the pigs ate, which was pretty awful stuff. Mm -hmm. Probably a lot of garbage, uh, 
corn husks, whatever. But he has nothing to eat. So he finally says, you know, look, even my dad's hired servants have more than enough than to share, and I sit here in hunger. I'm going to go and say, Dad, I, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be your son, so make me as one of your hired servants. What is his picture of the Father? It's the one that the Pharisees, I think, believed in. Yeah. When the Pharisees believed in a judicial God who's oh, out to condemn, um, and and is I mean he he's been raised in Jewish culture, and, and in Jewish culture you do something so shameful as he has done, and you're not worth your your father's already disowned you a long time ago. That's that's the prevailing view. Uh, but uh, is there something more? Is, who did, did he get that picture of his father from his father? No. No. So where did he get it, besides the culture? Maybe I'm asking that story too early. Let's, I asked that question too early. Let's uh, move through the story. His brother. His, his older brother, I think so. But let's move through the story. So he, he starts home. And he's still a long way off. His father saw him. Now, assume, we have to assume his father is not a young man. And I'm already finding that I don't recognize people a far way off. Unless there's something really peculiar or different. Right, unless I know them by their walk or or something Mm -hmm. like that. But I have trouble quite recognizing a student I don't know well in the back of the classroom sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) So the fact that the father sees his son afar off suggests that he is out there scanning the horizon every day. Now, this, this story is very different than the other two in terms of being found. What is the state of the son? Is he in the state of the coin where he can't? he's helpless? No. no. Is he in the state of the sheep where he's helpless? No. No. Unlike the sheep who wanders off because he's a sheep and doesn't know any better, and the coin that gets lost out of carelessness maybe from the owner, the sheep, I mean the, the son, gets up and leaves. So that's one difference. What's another difference? The father's not going out to find him. That's exactly right. The father's not hunting for the son. Why? Well, didn't the son say he was dead to and, and, and he inferred that, certainly. And so it was almost saying, don't come find me. The son chose to walk away, and the father respects his choice. It's up to him. Now, of course, Ellen White portrays this in terms of the Heavenly Father, that he, while he waits for those of us who walk away, his heart is still drawing us 
reaching out to us. So the father sees him, moved with compassion, and runs to him, hugs him. Can you imagine hugging someone who's been in a pig's teeth? Your son. Hugged him and kissed him. And the son made his speech. Does he finish it? No. What does he leave out? I'm not worthy. No? He says that. Make me your heart, sir. Make me your heart, sir. He's not allowed to finish it. The father says, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the cat fatted calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate feasting because the son of mine is dead. Note who's dead in the story. The father doesn't own his own death. The son is the one who died. When you say someone else is dead to you, you die. It's, it's, it's a death to you, not to them. Mm. You know, I think, I, I think we're finding this kind of popping up here, aren't we? This theme of what we do to others is, is what we do to ourselves, or what has been done to us, should help us when people wound us, when they mistreat us, if we remember they... They have, someone has mistreated them so badly that they can do that to us. Or we can remember they, they're doing to themselves worse than they're doing to me. It's on them. It's in their yard. And when you forgive someone, you take all that, that angst and hurt and, and everything that they do to you and you put it right back in their yard and you leave it there. That's what forgiveness does. So the father does this. He doesn't own what the son did to him. So I'm glad you raised that point about you're dead to me because I've, I, I don't think I've heard it quite expressed that way. I've heard the idea, but, but not that, quite that expression. And, and coming to this really makes a very important point. So because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life, he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now I'm going to ask another question that has to do with salvation and atonement. Where's the sacrificial death? The Father giving money, Father giving up. I don't think, I don't think there necessarily is one. I mean, they, they slay a fattened calf, that's not a sacrifice, that's like a celebration. Yeah. <laughs> like a celebration dinner <laughs> banquet. Wouldn't thing. it be just like Jesus to turn the legal construct of, of the death of Jesus into a celebration. <laughs> Instead of appeasement of divine anger, what could be more opposite than a divine celebration? Kill the fatted cow so we can eat. In, in Asian cultures, eating is just very important. I learned this teaching in Asia. Um, I was a sponsor of the sophomore class. And 
I found out that the one number one thing they like to do was eat. <laughs> so to to celebrate adequately, I mean, in in every other case, they gather together with his friends and, and they celebrate, right? In this case, you've got to have food. So kill the fatted calf. That's the that's the sacrifice. Jesus did not go to the cross to appease an angry father. This parable totally negates that concept. Jesus went to the cross to see the travail of his soul because he could find us. And, and how that all works out, we'll, we'll find out when we get to Romans. But that's what I see going on here. So now we come to the older brother. And he's furious. And no, look what he says. In verse 29. Oh, first of all, the oldest son was furious and didn't want to enter in, but his father came out and interceded with him. It's what the Greek says. Now Jesus is taking the mediatorial work that he's going to do and the construct that he knows we're going to put on it and turns it upside down. Who's interceding with who? Is it the Jesus interceding with the Father? Father, Father, please forgive them. I don't know, son. Father, <laughs> Father, please forgive them. My blood, my blood. Well, maybe, son. Father, Father, please forgive them. I died for them. Okay. My justice was satisfied at the cross. I will forgive them. Who's interceding with him? Through Jesus with us. According to this parable, that's how it works. Now there's more to it than that. If you read Zechariah 3, uh, Job 1 and 2, there's the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night before God. And Jesus is offsetting those accusations, not to the Father, as though the Father doesn't know that those <laughs> accusations are, are valid, but he's offsetting it to the onlooking universe. Do, God does nothing without carrying the universe with him. This is, this is open court. But I just love, I love that word, intercede here. The father came out and interceded with him. And he answered his father. Talk about echoing Hasatan. Look, I've served you all these years. One way of translating it, I think, is I've slaved for you all these years. And I've never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you never have given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. So the father must have called all his son's friends to the feast. He knew everyone. He called them all up, said, Ah, my son's back, come on, let's celebrate. Mm -hmm. So what is the picture of the older brothers, uh, of the older brother toward his father? What, what picture of the father does he have? Well, I think he, um, he viewed his father as, in terms of he wanted service instead of he wanted like a son. Because he just got finished telling his younger son, no, I, I want a son, I don't want you to be my servant, I want you to be my son. I don't think that the elder brother understood that concept. Like he, he considered 
his father more so to be like he earned something or he had to work for him. That was more of their, their relationship. It's like a servant and father instead of like a son and father. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. I'm sorry. The father is more. Uh, well, the older brother has the Pharisaical view. Yeah, he does have the Pharisaical view. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Jordan. He sees his father as a slave master, and he's a slave. Is that the sort, the picture of his father that he helped his younger brother to see? And, and isn't it ironic? The, the boy leaves home with the inheritance to escape slavery, and he ends up in a pixie as a slave with no food. And he realizes, you know, duh, well, at least my dad's hired servants have enough to eat. I'll go back, I'll be one level higher than a slave, I'll go back and be a hired servant. So what does the father say to his older son? He was clearly jealous of his father's generosity toward his brother. Son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Do you get that? Do you get the implications of that? Everything I have is yours. Mm-hmm. Putting it in the cosmological, isn't that we are the ones that are the prodigals? And not that the rest of the created world are putting this angry look on that face. It, it's more like what we would put on there. How can they not be angry with us? And yet we're coming home and begging to be, you know, just just let me be in the kingdom. I don't care if I have anything. But but look at what, what how God transforms that image. Mm-hmm. This lavish banquet, the robe, the ring. You know what that ring was? His signet. Yeah, he now had the access to the bank account. But have you gotten the significance of what he says to the older brother? Everything I have is yours. Is that true? Do you remember what I pointed out to you at the beginning of the story? Yeah. Divided them. They divided to him his them in his inheritance. The older son got twice as much as the younger brother. He got everything that was left. Title deed, bill of sale, whatever. He got it. It's all his. The father has nothing. And it's like, you know, if, if, you, can't, if you can't spare a fatted calf from my son when he comes home, you know. Um, everything I have is yours. I don't think we can quite grasp the significance of this. That the God who gave us everything in the beginning. He made it all. Gives, gives his wastrel son 
lavishly everything that he deserves by inheritance. And then when the son comes back after squandering, he gives him the keys to the, or the password to the bank account. And then to the older brother, he says, I have nothing. It's all yours. And so he's, as it were, almost saying, but we had to celebrate. We had to kill the fatted calf. We had, I had to give him that robe. I had to, you know, it's all yours, but I had to do this. So I, I love to end this story by suggesting that we some night go out and look at the sky and hear God say to us, everything I have is yours. If Paul says he gave us Christ, will he not give us all things with him? And you think of God persuading the universe that we're, we're safe to save. We won't ruin the new Jerusalem. We won't trash heaven like we trash this earth. You think of God giving everything he had in his son because he gave his heart when he gave us Jesus. Our time is passed up. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe that you are so lavish, that you value us so highly, that you seek for us so earnestly, as though we were the only person in your life and that you had to have us regardless of the cost and that when we come home you turn around despite having squandered your wealth you give us everything and that what you value in those of us who stay home and criticize our wasteful brothers and sisters what you want us to enjoy is the companionship with you. As you said to the older brother, I am with you all this time. May we not miss out in the joy and the pleasure of being with you in your house and appreciating all that you lavish upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.